Okay, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. How are y'all doing? <clears throat> Despite the rain. Oh, we're enjoying the, the real float uh, this day, right? Amen. All day long. Uh, Mike shared last night about the triune God flowing. Amen. The Father's the source, the Son is the course, and the Spirit is the flow. Amen. And what's the destination? The body. The body. Hallelujah. Well, we want to continue in this flow tonight. Uh, the last message, uh, well, not the one you got into on Daniel, but the one before that was on God's flow through young people, his move through young people in the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Of course, you, brothers and sisters, dived into uh, <clears throat> Daniel and the pattern that he set as a young person, uh, seeking God and being uh, one with God in the word and prayer and consecration. Uh, but now we want to move on to see God's move through young people in church history. So this uh, on your outline is page number 27. Page number 27, message four, God's move with young people, part two, the testimony of church history. The testimony of church history. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, to begin, how about we all read together the first verse there, Acts 17, 27. Go. That they might see God, and perhaps they might grow from Him and find Him, even though He is not far from each one of us. Amen. You know, who is, who is the they in this verse? That they might seek God. Well, in the previous verse, it says that God has arranged even the borders of nations, uh, every nation of men dwelling on the earth, that they might seek God. God has been arranging uh, on the whole earth, all throughout time. He's been arranging uh, so that people on earth would be seeking God. And even, I like what it says here, even that they might grope for Him and find Him. Hallelujah. If you seek God and grope for God, you will find Him. Even though He is not far. Praise the Lord. Our God has gone through a process. He had dwelt alone in unapproachable light, far, far away, but He's gone through a process. And uh, the last point that Mike shared last night is that uh, concerning the Spirit, the Spirit has been outpoured. God has reached man. Praise the Lord. So he's not far. He's not far from each one of us. He's, he's like a drink of water, like a breath of air. We can breathe him in. He's been poured out upon all flesh. So praise the Lord. He's not far. And uh, it says here in the next verse, Hebrews eleven six, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What's the reward? What's the prize? that we could gain the riches of Christ, right? In Philippians 3, Paul counted everything as loss, everything as dung, that he might gain Christ, that he might lay hold of Christ, that he might reach the goal of Christ as the prize. Praise the Lord. For those who seek him, there's a reward. And then um, one thing that I want to emphasize throughout this entire message tonight is the first phrase of 1 Timothy 
Let's read those first six words together. Go. Let no one despise your youth. Let no one despise your youth. Brothers and sisters, you're not too young. You are not too young. And we will see uh, as this message unfolds that you are not too young. Uh, The first uh, few verses under that line are concerning a person named Mary, Mary the Magdalene. And she had spent time with the Lord. Actually, the Lord uh, rescued her from demon possession, cast out seven demons. And uh, she joined the Lord. She was with him for a period of time. And several times during the course of those years, the Lord unveiled his death and resurrection. He unveiled that he would be handed over uh, to the ones in authority. He would be crucified, but he would be resurrected. And this Mary, she heard him and she understood. You know, the, the brothers, they didn't understand. <laughs> they didn't know what he was talking about. But somehow she perceived what was going to happen. And as it got close to the end, uh, just a, a very short time before he was crucified, this happened, and uh, it mentions in John 12. Actually, this uh, account is recorded in uh, several of the Gospels. In John 12, it mentioned that she took a pound of ointment, a very valuable pure nard. Circle that phrase, very valuable. And, uh, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Um, and the house was filled with the fragrance of that ointment. When you look at the account in Matthew 26, verse 7, it also mentions that this was very valuable, having an alabaster flask of ointment of great value. And look what it says she did. She poured it on his head. She poured it out. She poured it out. Brothers and sisters, she, she didn't dab it out. She didn't measure it out. She poured it out. This, th- another account says this ointment was worth 300 denarii. That's about a year's wages. Very valuable. Of great value. And she just poured the whole thing out on the Lord. That was a reckless act. A reckless act. Um, and then, listen, when the disciples saw it, who, who are the disciples? Well, that's Peter and John and James and, you know, these ones. When they saw what she did, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Why this waste? She, she poured out everything on the Lord, everything she had. Surely she didn't have two flasks like that. That was probably her whole life savings wrapped up in that one flask of valuable ointment, which she recklessly poured out on the Lord. And the disciples, even, they said, why this waste? Uh, This could have been sold for much and given to the poor. But the Lord, knowing it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? She has done a noble deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. In, or in pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it for my burial. 
You see, she seized the opportunity to pour everything out on the Lord. She understood that he wasn't going to be around much longer. And she seized the opportunity. And then it goes on, and the Lord says this. Let's all read 13 together. Go. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be told as a memorial of her. You know, <clears throat> wherever this gospel... What, how, how many here have ever preached the gospel? Yeah, a lot of us. We've preached the gospel, we've shared the gospel with our friends, with our neighbors, relatives, classmates. Let me ask you this. When you've shared the gospel with, your, with the ones around you, have you ever also shared what this woman has done? Do you consider that? But the Lord said, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be told as a memorial of her. Well, what's, what's the story of the gospel? The story of the gospel, in brief, is God so loved the world that he poured out everything on us. Right? He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe into Him would not perish but have eternal life. That's, surely that's the most famous verse in the entire Bible, probably. Right? People write that verse on posters and they hang it up in football games and it's seen all over the world on TV and everywhere. But how many know what this woman has done? The story of Mary is that she so loved the Lord that she poured out everything on Him. You see, there was, uh, there was some reciprocity there, right? <laughs> the Lord so loved us that He gave everything. But she so loved the Lord that she poured out everything on Him. And, you know, I wonder, I've, I mean, I've preached the gospel a lot also, and I can't remember a one time that I've ever shared the story of Mary along with my gospel preaching. <clears throat> but I've wondered, um, I wonder if, if we're sharing the gospel and we uh, are a person who has poured out everything on the Lord, when we're sharing the gospel with people, there will be an impact there. In other words, we are that Mary. We are the ones who have poured out everything on the Lord. And we're going to preach this gospel to people. And when we who are poured out on the Lord preach this gospel, there's an impact. There's a fragrance. They smell the fragrance of Christ. In other words, you're not just teaching people about Jesus and about what he can do for, for you. But you are a person who is poured out on him. You've met the Lord. You've spent time at the Lord's feet listening to his word. You've been attracted to him. You've poured out everything on him. And when you speak the gospel to people, in a sense, they're touching Mary. They're... they're perceiving this woman right here. Her story is being told through your consecration. Maybe. I don't know. 
but maybe it has something to do like that. Uh, let's go on. I, I would like for all of us to read this footnote together. This is a footnote on verse 8. Um, why this waste? How about we read it all together? The disciples considered Mary's love offering to the Lord a waste. Throughout the past 20 centuries, thousands of precious lives, heart treasures, high positions, and golden futures have been wasted upon the Lord. To those who love Him in such a way, He is altogether lovely and worthy of their offering. What they have poured upon Him is not a waste, but a fragrant testimony of His sweetness. You know, um, as a young person, you probably don't have a lot of money. You probably don't have a lot of material possessions. But one thing you do have is you have a golden future. You don't have a high position yet, but you have a golden future. This is something that's very valuable to all young people. Your dreams, your hopes, your aspirations for the future. Uh, this is very valuable. This is very precious to young people because your whole life is ahead of you. Um, and if you meet the Lord Jesus at your age um, and you have a spontaneous reaction in your being to consecrate your life to Him, to pour out on Him, there will be some background noise. There will be some voices saying, why this waste? What a waste. You could have been such and such. You could have done such and such with your life. Why this waste? Well, you know what? There, actually, there is a verse in the Bible. You can write this down. Mark 12, 30. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart with your whole mind, with your whole soul, and with your whole strength. This is the greatest commandment. It's a commandment from God. So it's okay to pour yourself out on Him, to love Him with your entire being. It's a commandment from God. So that commandment can drown out all these background voices, right? Praise the Lord. That we could be a people, a young, even a young people, who are poured out on Christ. You know, I can tell you, as the years go by, and they go by faster and faster every year, <laughs> um, there's nothing else worthwhile than Jesus Christ. Uh, <clears throat> Christ in the church. Nothing else worthwhile. Well, and as that footnote says, throughout the past 20 centuries, thousands of precious lives, hearts, desires, high positions, golden futures have been wasted. Well, we want to spend some time tonight to go through some of those, uh, some of those thousands. <laughs> of course, it's impossible. It's an impossible job. Even we have listed here 33 people. Um, I don't even have the time to get into a third of these names tonight. But I want to get into a few and focus on a few and leave you with something to take home from each particular one that I get into. Um, this next quote, before we do that, um, 
it talks about lighting a candle and how long will a candle last. You know, when we first received the Lord, our spirit got ignited. It got lit by the divine fire. In Proverbs 20, 27, it says, The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. Before you met the Lord, your spirit was dead. But when you met the Lord, the divine fire came in, and your lamp got lit. But, uh, you know, one day, your life will be over. Um, But if you speak the gospel to someone, and that person gets saved, and the the divine fire comes inside of them, and their lamp gets lit, then when you pass away, there's a continuation. And this has been the story of church history. People seeking God, groping for God, finding God, getting lit by the divine fire, passing it on to someone else, passing it on to the next generation. So when they pass away, this divine fire keeps burning, it grows, it's spreading over the face of the whole earth. It's marvelous. So um, I hope you would be inspired to spread this divine fire. Uh, When you go back to your campuses, back to your localities, keep spreading this divine fire. Um, The first one that we want to touch on is number one, John Wycliffe. Uh, John Wycliffe, you can see he lived uh, 1329 to 1384. This was toward the end of the Dark Ages and just preceding the... Reformation. Um, In fact, some people call him the morning star of the Reformation. The Reformation was dawning at this time. He was a young professor at Oxford University, and he did the earliest English translation of the Bible from the Latin. From Latin. And uh, I thought I would take a moment to just share a little something about the Bible that you hold in your hands today. Because some of your friends, some of your uh, classmates, some of your professors even, will tell you you're a fool for believing in this book. This book is just a translation of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of an oral tradition of a myth. And you're basing your whole life on this book? Even if somebody wrote parts of it 2,000 years ago, surely there's all kinds of errors in it, mistakes, things have been added, things have been deleted, people have forged things and corrupted it somehow. You can't believe this book. Have you ever heard that in a classroom? Or from a friend? Well, uh, I want to tell you a story. You know, we're talking about history here. Here's a testimony of a young man who lived more recently in the last century. Actually, he's still alive. This was Josh McDowell. <clears throat> but he was a young man, and uh, he was an unbeliever. He hated Christianity. He hated God when he was in college. And, um, but while he was there at the university, 
he saw this little group of students and a couple professors meeting together fairly regularly on his campus. And he could tell they were different. And so one day he walked up to him and sat down with him at a table. And uh, he said, uh, He said, I turned to one of the girls in the group and said, Tell me, what changed your lives? Why are you so different from the other students and faculty? She looked me straight in the eyes and said two words I had never expected to hear in an intelligent discussion on a university campus. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, I snapped. Don't give me that kind of garbage. I'm fed up with religion, the Bible, and the church. She quickly shot back, Mister, I didn't say religion, I said Jesus Christ. <laughs> Taken aback by the girl's courage and conviction, that, by the way, this was a college student girl. College student. Taken aback, I apologize for my attitude. Um, and then my new friends issued me a challenge I couldn't believe. They challenged me, a pre-law student, to examine intellectually the claim that Jesus Christ is God's Son. I thought this was a joke. These Christians were so dumb. How could something as flimsy as Christianity stand up to an intellectual examination? I scoffed at their challenge. But they didn't let up. They continued to challenge me day after day, and finally they backed me in a corner. I became so irritated at their insistence that I finally accepted their challenge, not to prove anything, but to refute them. I decided to write a book that would make an intellectual joke of Christianity. I left the university and traveled throughout the United States and Europe to gather evidence to prove that Christianity is a sham. Eventually, this is the book that he wrote. <laughs> it's about 760 pages. It's encyclopedic, encyclopedic with very fine print, hundreds of references, uh, evidence that demands a verdict. And uh, basically, he discovered that Christianity is not a sham. He discovered that the Bible is not... Uh, full of errors and contradictions and so forth. Let me tell you a few things he found. Uh, first of all, in the case of the New Testament, we have, 20, we have over 24,000 ancient manuscripts, handwritten copies, which range in date from the 2nd through the 15th centuries. At least one of these manuscripts the Magdalene Manuscript Fragments of Matthew 26 is even considered to have been coexistent with the original. In other words, having been copied while the original author, Matthew in this case, was still alive. In other words, it dates back to that time period when Matthew was still alive. It may even be the original. It's some parts of Matthew 26. Imagine that, brothers. The story of Mary... That story is still the original. Actually, this was written up in Time magazine back in the 90s. It was written up. 
that they found these portions of Matthew 26, the so-called Magdalene manuscript, that date back to the middle of uh, you know, 50 or 60 A.D. Um, this, okay, over 24,000 manuscripts. This is a phenomenal number of manuscripts which no other writing of antiquity even comes close to furnishing. And a great number of these manuscripts were produced within two to three hundred years of the original. And even uh, one, the, the Magdalene manuscript, um, purported to be contemporary with the, the original. So with so many manuscripts at our disposal for cross-examining and comparing with the document we now read, we would be able to easily detect whether a scribe's agenda or exaggeration or other addition or deletion has crept in to somehow alter what was in the original document. And the evidence is clear that for most of the biblical text, a single reading has been transmitted. You know, if you have, let's say you have, uh, well, take this little portion from Matthew 26 that was dated around, let's say, 60 A.D., and you compare that with another manuscript that's dated around 200 A.D. So you know that one is a copy of a copy, you know, several generations down the line. You could tell if there was any changes, right? And we don't just have one from 200 A.D. We have many, hundreds. We have hundreds from 300 A.D., 400 A.D., all the way up through until the printing press was invented in the 1400s. 24,000 manuscripts. Okay, if that's not enough, the early translations of the New Testament. You know, once, the, once Christ died and resurrected, the gospel began to spread around the Mediterranean region. And at the same time, uh, <clears throat> portions of what was eventually canonized in the New Testament were translated into the various languages around the Mediterranean region. I don't know, maybe translated into um, Arabic, Latin, Italian. I don't know what kind of languages were around there. But at the present time, we have in our possession at least 14 different trans, uh, languages of translations that date from between the 2nd through the 6th centuries. So if people living in the decades or centuries after the original New Testament authors had passed away, wanted to fabricate some stories of Jesus or somehow corrupt what was written in the original manuscripts, it surely would have been nearly impossible to gather up all these translations and change them somehow. See? And then another thing. Lectionaries. A lectionary is a book that contains portions of Scripture which are designated to be read on specific days of the year during church services. This is something that came in later, around the 5th century, and continued uh, for many centuries to have these lectionaries. So they would write down what scriptures we're going to read today during our church service. And those lectionaries uh, have been preserved. There's over 2,300 lectionaries in existence. And so we can compare the scriptures that are quoted in the lectionaries 
with what we have in our manuscripts. And again, no changes, no additions, no deletions, no corruption, no forgery. Now here's something that might blow your mind. Okay, the early church fathers quoted the New Testament scriptures in their sermons, in their commentaries, and in their other treatises. These are people like Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian. These early church fathers, they quoted the scriptures in their writings when they were expounding on the word. And so, I'm just going to read this, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament with the exception of only 11 verses. Anyways, I I could go on and on, but... um, then you come to the Old Testament. You know, with, with the Old Testament, <clears throat> um, before World War II, the oldest known manuscript in existence that was in Hebrew for the Old Testament dated to around 980 A.D. And so, of course, people would have a big question mark. This is a thousand years after Jesus Christ. Could... Couldn't there have been some changes, some modifications, some additions, deletions, um, somebody's corrupt agenda creeping in to to change those documents? But then, after World War II, 1947, uh, found in some caves near the Dead Sea were the so-called Dead Sea Scrolls which, if I remember correctly, it includes nearly the entire Old Testament with the exception of the book of Esther. Um, And these Dead Sea Scrolls were dated to between 200 and 100 B.C., before Christ. So that's over a thousand years earlier than the previous oldest manuscript that we had to look at. And guess what? identical. And here's an example. The two copies of Isaiah that were found in that cave proved to be word-for-word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% of variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. They do not affect the message of Revelation in the slightest. Anyways, brothers and sisters, the Bible... Praise the Lord. We have, we have a copy today and it's translated into our language that we can read. And guess what? It's the same as the original writings 2,000 years ago. You can be assured. Okay. Praise the Lord. So anyways, a young man, John Wycliffe, translated the first English uh, translation. He viewed Scripture as having supreme authority in the church and that Scripture and Christ are one. He said this, It is the Holy Spirit that teaches us the meaning of Scripture, just as Christ opened the Scriptures to the apostles. His main book was entitled, Of the Truth of Holy Scripture. 
That was, his, that was his main work of the truth of Holy Scripture. He strongly opposed this group of people called the Carmelites and another group called the Dominicans. Uh, these were various orders of monks who traveled around and they begged for money and they told tales about Jesus and so forth. Uh, tales of how Jesus turned some mud into a bird and different kind of tales and begging for money. And he was a professor at, at Oxford and he told his students, he says, don't follow those people. And he gave them copies of his translation into English of the, of the Bible. And he, uh, you know, they, they began to read it and, it. and they were called Lollards. And the word Lollard actually means uh, mutters. Because they muttered or mumbled God's word always. You know, you have to realize this was before the printing press. And they wanted to commit the word of God to memory. What's the best way? Just mutter it. Chew on it. You know, I like this. Chewing on the word. They were chewing on the word. Muttering it. Speaking it. Probably even praying it. I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they were praying the word. You know, in Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word became the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I bet these lollers were full of rejoicing, full of joy, because they were chewing on God's word. Um, so, Wycliffe, eventually his writings and his followers had powerful impact on Europe, especially someone named John Huss, who is the second one here. Uh, I don't want to say too much about Huss, except that eventually he was burned at the stake. Um, Wycliffe died in peace, but later when, uh, when they burned John Huss at the stake, they called him a heretic, uh, <clears throat> they dug up the bones of John Wycliffe and burned them and scattered the ashes in a river. That's how much... They hated these seekers of God. Let's go on with number three, Martin Luther. Luther, uh, you know, if Wycliffe was called the morning star of the Reformation, Martin Luther was called the spearhead of the Reformation. The spearhead. Uh, <clears throat> because eventually uh, he did something very important. But let me... Before I talk about that, let me just explain what time period he lived in. He lived during the time of Columbus, Magellan, Machiavelli, Raphael, Michelangelo, Copernicus, Zwingli, Henry VIII, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Black Plague. <laughs> that was the time period that Martin Luther lived in. It was quite a time. And... Um, of course, by that time, the printing press had already been invented, um, and Gutenberg had already printed the Bible in Latin. I think in total, if I remember, actually, we have a copy in our library at UT Austin. Um, I think there were only 180 copies printed. Um, but anyways, Luther, as a young man, he was enrolled in university, and uh, he was planning to become a lawyer, but at the age of 20, uh, or actually 21, he dedicated his life to become a monk. And uh, he saw a Bible chained to the wall in the monastery. 
And that was the first time he had ever seen the Bible. You know, we just take it for granted. We have, I think Chris Hall told us, there's 4.7 Bibles in every household in America. We just take it for granted. But back in those days, if you weren't a monk or a priest or someone that could enter a monastery, you would have no access to the Bible. Not only that, it was written in Latin, which most people couldn't read. So even if you could (laughs) see a Bible, you couldn't read it. So the Bible was not that available. But he saw one. He began to read it. He was a monk. He began to read the Bible. And um, in 1510, around the age of 26, Martin Luther um, decided to go to Rome, and he was absolutely disgusted with what he saw. He saw corruption. He saw priests going to brothels. And they were joking about the bread and the wine. Uh, They had all kinds of ludicrous relics hanging around. They even had a branch from the burning bush. And they had the coins. Remember, Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver to turn in Jesus, right, to the authorities. And later he he, uh, changed his mind and threw the money back at the people that gave him the money. Well, apparently those 30 pieces of silver were there in in Rome. Um, They had the beam upon which Judas hung himself. And they had various bones of people. So all these kind of ludicrous relics. um, He was just disgusted by what he saw. And while he was there in Rome... He hoped to obtain an indulgence from the Pope by climbing up these stairs called Pilate's Staircase. Apparently, this was the staircase that Pilate stood on when he was convicting Jesus, and somehow that staircase was transported to Rome, and he was there climbing up it because the Pope said, if you climb up this uh, prayerfully on your knees, you will gain an indulgence. So he was doing this, and as he was climbing... He was halted by the words of the Scripture which came to him. Remember, he had been reading the Bible in that monastery. And he's climbing on his knees up these stairs, praying. And the words of Scripture are rising up in his heart. And this is the word that came to him. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. He said that Scripture just rung in his brain like a bright light beyond the brightness of the sun. The just shall live by faith. Um, Anyways, that was the beginning of Luther's conversion. Then um, he he went back to Germany, continued his studies in Wittenberg, uh, became a doctor of theology in 1512 at the age of 28. Um... And then, in October 31st, on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago, this, actually this year is the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the monastery. Um, and actually, I don't believe he intended to um, leave the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it. But by making all these points 
to the Catholic Church about what didn't jive with Scripture, eventually they rose up to try to kill him. You see? <clears throat> and um, so eventually he was, uh, he was kidnapped by some friends. He had some friends in high power. Um, one was called Frederick the Wise, one of the princes of Germany. Um, he protected Luther. He had him kidnapped and hidden at Wartburg Castle. And while he was there for many months, he began his translation of the New Testament into Germany, I'm sorry, into German from the original Greek. And that translation is still used today. Praise the Lord. The Bible got translated into another language. He desired that every plowboy in Germany would have a copy of the Bible to read. You know, the Bible is the only source of light in the whole world. Uh, eventually, the cry of the Reformation became solo scriptura, which means only scripture. We just want what's in the scriptures. Nothing else added. All right, let's move on to number 12. Count Nicholas Zinzendorf, 1700-1760. Zinzendorf was one of those rare Christians born into a noble family, uh, yet fully consecrated to the Lord. You know, there is a verse in Corinthians that says, not many wise, not many well-born are called. But he was called, even at a young age, he began to love the Lord at the age of six. And he continued to mature in, the, in Christ throughout his school years. In his youth, Zinzendorf often had opened his heart to his grandmother. They prayed together concerning things that bothered his conscience. This fellowship left a deep impression throughout his life. You know, in, in Acts 24, 16, the Apostle Paul said, I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense between, uh, before God and men. Uh, brothers and sisters, we need to practice this, right? To always take care of our conscience. Uh, the conscience is the gateway to the whole being. And uh, it's the gateway to our spirit. If we don't take care of our conscience, when we commit a sin, when we offend the Lord... Um, when we offend some other person, um, our conscience should bother us. And when it does, we need to confess to the Lord uh, that his blood could be applied. Um, when we confess to the Lord, all the barriers are removed between us and the Lord, and the life can flow again. When we commit a sin, our relationship with the Lord is never changed. It's never cut off. We're born of God and that's something eternal. When my children offend me, they're still my children. Right? That life relationship is not damaged by what I do, what they do. But the fellowship between us and the Lord is cut off when we sin. So we have to learn to take care of our conscience. Our conscience is the leading part of our spirit. The top way to exercise our spirit is to confess to the Lord. You can be a person who's calling on the Lord, jumping up and down, but if your conscience is not clear before the Lord, there's no flow. The fellowship is cut off, and no matter what you do, it's not going to be restored until you confess to the Lord 
and apply the blood of Christ. So Zinzendorf had this experience um, as he was fellowshipping with his grandmother. They prayed together concerning things that bothered his conscience. Uh, By the age of 15, he could read the New Testament in Greek. He went to Wittenberg and studied law. At the age of 20, he finished his studies and took a journey around Europe. And during this tour, he viewed a picture of Jesus on the cross with the inscription beneath it saying, I have done this for you. What have you done for me? At this time, Zinzendorf felt called to give his whole life to serve the Lord. This is consecration. Consecration is the spontaneous reaction of seeing the Lord. In uh, Genesis, with Abraham, it talks about how the God of glory appeared to him. Appeared to him. Abraham, I don't know what your thoughts are about Abraham. He was living in Ur of Chaldea, worshiping idols on the other side of the river like all the rest. But the God of glory came to him and appeared to him. Not just once, but numerous times. Appeared again and again. Eventually, that appearing is what caused Abraham to get up and get out of that land and cross the river Euphrates into uh, the good land of you know, Canaan. But it was God's appearing. And brothers and sisters, you're not too young to receive God's appearing. You're not too young to consecrate your life to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I was younger than you when the God of glory appeared to me. And the spontaneous reaction was, Lord, make me useful to you for your purpose. I don't know what your purpose is, but I want to be useful to you for your purpose. And I was in the Catholic Church. I grew up as a Catholic, but the God of glory appeared to me. I got regenerated at a young age, and the God of glory appeared to me. And while I was in junior high school, I was praying every night before I went to bed. Lord, make me useful to you for your purpose. Somehow, I heard God had a purpose. I don't know where I heard it. But that became my prayer. Make me, make me useful to you for your purpose. I don't know what your purpose is. And I prayed every night before I went to bed for years. But, <clears throat> brothers and sisters, my point is, don't despise your youth. Right? You're not too young to consecrate your whole life to the Lord. Um, <clears throat> eventually, um, here with Zinzendorf, he was 21 years old. He purchased a large estate. Of course, this is his reaction to this inscription that he read, and he consecrated himself. He purchased this large estate um, in the eastern part of Germany close to the Czech Republic, and in just a year, some persecuted Christians sought refuge there. This began uh, what was called Hernhut, which which literally means the Lord's Watch. 
But persecuted Christians from all different kinds of backgrounds, um, Anabaptists, Separatists, Reformed, former Catholics, Lutheran, Pietists, and other nonconformists, they came to seek refuge. But while they were there in Hernhut, uh, they began fighting with one another over different doctrines and things like that. Um, and Zinzendorf feared that the whole community would dissolve. So, uh, and there were over 300 there. 300 were living there by 1726, speaking 22 different languages. Well, eventually he saw what was going on, he moved his family there, and he made everyone sign this contract called the Brotherly Agreement, uh, which basically meant <laughs> you better stop your fighting and be one with each other, uh, otherwise you can't live here anymore. So um, they began to be one. They began to pray together, and the Spirit was outpoured on Hernhut. And from that base... Um, just they became uh, the Moravian brethren. They spread the gospel all over the earth. They had a 100-year prayer watch, round the clock, 24 hours, for 100 years. You can imagine how much the Lord accomplished through all that prayer by this group of people that were just one. Uh, let's go on to number four, or sorry, number 14. 14. George Whitfield, 1714 to 1770. At age 17, he began seeking. And at 18, he went to Oxford uh, when John Wesley was teaching there. You know, Wesley uh, became a great evangelist. Um, he was given a book by Charles Wesley entitled The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And this book is what brought him to his salvation. It brought Whitfield to salvation at the age of 21. By the time he was 22, a year after his salvation, brothers and sisters, he was preaching in the Anglican church to large crowds. He wrote a tract on the need of regeneration and new birth in Jesus Christ when he was 23 years old, two years after he got saved. He began his ministry in colonial America when he was 25. He spoke to over 23,000 gathered to hear him in Boston, more than the entire population of the city and the largest crowd ever to gather in colonial America to that date, 1740, when he was 25 years old. It is said that some 80% of the American colonists heard him speak at least once. He was better known than George Washington. He said this on one occasion. You know, for those who are pursuing the Lord, if you're pursuing the Lord, you need to be prepared to be persecuted. Um, It says this, um, he, or sorry, he said this about his preaching on one occasion. I was honored to have a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats thrown at me. <laughs> Anyways, this is a faithful servant of the Lord. 
You know, a faithful servant considers that the criticisms of others are a very small thing. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, What is sought in stewards is that one be found faithful. One be found faithful. And a faithful one is not bothered by the criticisms of others. He traveled to America seven times. He delivered over 18,000 messages. He spoke to over 10 million people in his short life of 56 years. Whitfield's last sermon, the night before he died, was about the inability of works to merit salvation. It was preached in New Hampshire on September 29, 1770. It is, in it, he said, works, works. A man gets to heaven by works. I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. He died the next morning. Over 6,000 people attended his funeral service. Amen. Uh, Charles Finney. I don't know how many have heard of Charles Finney. He was the founder of Oberlin College in Ohio. Um, he lived from 1792 to 1875. Uh, an American, a young lawyer. He was extremely self-conscious. Are any of you young people self-conscious? Worried about losing your face? What your friends will think about you? Well, Finney was extremely self-conscious. When he began seeking God, he was a young man in his upper 20s. As a young attorney, he began reading the Bible. And when anyone would come into the room, you know, he's there reading his Bible. <clears throat> and uh, when anyone would come into the room, he'd quickly close it and put something on it like that. He didn't want to see other people see or have other people seeing him read the Bible. And he would only pray in his office if he could plug up the keyholes so no one could look through and see him praying. At some point, he was so tormented and agonized within about his salvation, he decided, I've got to know. One day, he was walking to his office, and he decided, no, I'm going to go into the woods, and I'm either going to come out saved or I'm not coming out. And then he thought, oh my goodness, people are going to see me going in the woods. So... <laughs> So he snuck around another way and he slipped into the forest and he found a quiet place where he could kneel down and start praying. And as he began to pray, he heard some rustling in the leaves and he jumped up and looked around. And then uh, he got down on his knees again. He just couldn't pray. And he heard some more rustling and he jumped up again. Well, at that moment, he had a realization. He said, I am a slave to what people think of me. And he cried out, God, have mercy on me. God, help me. And, he, and as soon as he realized that and cried out to God, he said, I felt torrents of peace. And scriptures started rising up in me, providing utterance for a solid prayer of salvation. Finney went on to become a powerful preacher around the age of 29. 
And uh, remember, formerly he was a lawyer. He said that he gave up his law practice because he had been given a retainer from Jesus Christ to plead his case. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> okay, let's go on to number 25, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon lived there in the middle to the late 1800s. He was converted when he was 16 years old. Um, and I'd like to read what he writes in his biography about his conversion. It's very uh, interesting. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday while I was going to a certain place of worship. Again, he's 16 years old, younger than most of you. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. It is interesting that at least three, past, three persons later would claim to be this thin man. <clears throat> Spurgeon regarded the impromptu preacher as a local, not a minister. He was, just, he was just a shoemaker or a tailor or some local person. He was not a minister. And he stood up in the pulpit to preach. And his text, his scripture text was this, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. The preacher bungled the pronunciation. Spurgeon recorded the opening as follows. My dear friends, so this is, this is the, the local person, the tall, thin man preaching with this one scripture verse. He said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. A, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. That was his message. One little verse, and the key word is look. Look, look to Jesus, Jesus Christ. Don't look to yourselves, look to Him. 
Well, Spurgeon, 16 years old, um, he says, oh, oh, I forgot this part. He thought the preacher had said all he had to say, when to his great surprise, the thin man looked straight at him and said, young man, you look very miserable, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in this life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. You have nothing to do but look and live. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But, of course, in the end, Spurgeon looked and he saw Christ. And he lived. He got regenerated right there in the middle of that snowstorm without an ordained pastor or minister. It was just a local person, a shoemaker or a tailor. Uh, the preaching was crude, but it contained the power of God's salvation. Listen, young people, you may not have all the right words, but it doesn't matter. The power of your gospel preaching is your youth. If you look at any tree, any shrub, any vine, it's the young, tender branches that are bearing the fruit. It's not the old ones that are covered with thick bark. No, it's the young, tender ones. You could almost say anything. You could say the wrong thing. But because of your youth, and you're full of the divine life, and your burden, people will get saved. People will get saved. Anyways, I like that. The preaching was crude, but it contained the power of God's salvation. Um, <clears throat> Let me see here. Well, okay, to finish out with Spurgeon, eventually he became a great minister of the Word. Um, <clears throat> the London Metropolitan Tabernacle a structure accommodating 6,000 people was built in 1861 just for him. By the time he was 20, how many in here are 20? See, a lot of 20-year-olds here. By the time he was 20, he had preached over 600 messages. It is estimated that he had spoken to over 10 million people in his lifetime. In 1865, his sermons were being sold 25,000 copies per week and translated into 20 languages. He also wrote several books and had his sermons published into a series that is about the size of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, actually, I want to read one other thing about Spurgeon. I forgot to bring up this other book. <clears throat> One thing else about Spurgeon is that he loved to pray the Word of God. Um, and I would just want to read a couple of his statements about praying the Word of God. It says here, um, he was a diligent and powerful British minister 
during the last century, he came, uh, this came at least in part from his unique ability to use figurative language and dramatic illustrations in presenting the truths of God's word. Spurgeon described the interdependence of God's word and prayer using vivid illustrations. Here's one. He says, it is a great thing to pray oneself into the spirit and marrow of a text, working into it by sacred feeding thereon, even as the worm bores its way into the kernel of the nut. Prayer supplies a leverage for the uplifting of ponderous truths. Here's another statement about praying the word. New veins of precious ore will be revealed to your astonished gaze as you quarry God's word and use diligently the hammer of prayer. And then one more. Use prayer as a boring rod and wells of living water will leap up from the bowels of the word. Who will be content to thirst when living waters are so readily to be obtained. Mike talked last night about this flow, right? The triune God is flowing. He's been flowing throughout time. He's been flowing throughout history. That flow is ready and available for us to drink. It's all contained right here. If you just open this book and begin to read and pray what you read in the Bible... Living water will gush up from the bowels of your being, and you'll be watered with the divine life. Praise the Lord. I highly recommend pray reading the Word of God. All right, let's move on to uh, number 26, Hudson Taylor. One day, when Hudson Taylor was 16, while his mother was away and praying for him at that very moment, he picked up and read a gospel tract that opened his eyes to the finished work of Christ. Um, <clears throat> and this is a, a short paragraph from a biography about Hudson Taylor. 16-year-old Hudson went into his father's library one afternoon in search of a book to read. Finally, he picked up a gospel tract entitled, It is Finished and decided to read the story on the front. He came upon the expression, the finished work of Christ. Remembering the words, it is finished, he raised the question, what is finished? The answers seemed to fall in place, and he received Christ as his Savior. The same afternoon and time, the exact same afternoon and the same time of day, his mother was visiting some relatives 75 miles away. Experiencing an intense yearning for the conversion of her son, she turned the key in the door and resolved not to leave her spot until her prayers were answered. <laughs> Hours later, she left with assurance. She returned 10 days later and was met at the door by her son, who said he had good news for her. She said, I know, my boy, I have been rejoicing for a fortnight in the glad tidings. Mother Taylor had learned of the incident from no human source, but God had assured her. The, the reason I wanted to read you that is that 
Someone prayed for our salvation. Maybe it was your mother. Maybe it was your grandmother. Somebody prayed. You know, we, we often go out on the gospel on the college campus. And, you know, college students are probably the most open people uh, to hear the gospel and to receive the gospel. But sometimes you'll run into somebody that's very negative. And they'll say, get away from me. I don't want to hear that garbage. Sometimes they'll wad up the tract and throw it back at you and walk off. Well, is that a bad experience? It's not a bad experience if you will offer up some prayer for that person. There may, you know, the Lord may have arranged that interaction, that brief interaction. Maybe it was only 10 seconds. You just walked up to the person, you introduced yourself, you let them know you want to share something about Christ, and blah, 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 and they walk off. Ten seconds. But as, as you're walking away, you just offer up some prayer for that person's salvation. It may be that no one on the earth has ever offered up one prayer for that person's salvation, and the Lord specifically arranged for you to meet that person for ten seconds and have that kind of interaction so that some prayer could be offered up. And at that moment, the Lord has a way to begin operating begin working in that person's life. Maybe next year, maybe five years from now, that person will get saved. Amen. Here's another thing about Taylor I wanted to say. Um, After he was called by the Lord, um, actually, he, he had determined that he wanted to go to China. And he was preparing. He was actually learning medicine because he felt like if I go to China, this might be a useful skill. Um, And he moved from the comfortable home of his parents to Drainside, a poverty-stricken, depressing area named after the notorious uh, foul ditch that was nearby. Drainside. How would you like to live by Drainside? It was at Drainside that Taylor learned one can trust God with his last cent. And I just want to read you this little story here. He had been called out late one night to witness to and pray over a sick woman with starving children. As he tried to pray, his words choked in his mouth because he had in his possession a silver coin that would answer his prayer and alleviate their suffering Somewhat. Hypocrite, he heard his heart condemn him. Telling people about a kind and loving Father in heaven and not prepared to trust him yourself without your money. He gave them his last coin. Only one bowl of porridge between him and poverty. I mean, this is him. He only had one coin left. And that was his last, last coin between him and poverty. As he ate that last meal, he remembered the scripture. He that giveth to the poor lendeth to the Lord. The next day he received a package. In it was a gold coin worth ten times the silver coin. Thus, at 19 years of age, Taylor learned 
that he could trust and obey God in every area of his life. Um, I'm not going to say much about George Mueller, number 29, except to tie it into this testimony of, of Hudson Taylor. You know, Mueller uh, ran an orphanage in Bristol, England, and he cared for tens of thousands of orphans over his lifetime. Um, and he never asked for money. He just prayed. And he's, he's the guy that, you know, he would record all of his prayers. He would write them down in a book. And then he would mark when they got answered. And in his lifetime, over a million prayers were answered. But listen, um, concerning money and trusting in God for our livelihood, Mueller, his favorite verse was Job 26.7, which says that he, God, hangs the earth on nothing. And he said, if God can hang the earth on nothing, surely he can take care of my financial needs. <laughs> Don't you think so? Um, he began medical studies, um, but in the midst of those, just four years after his salvation experience, he felt a stronger and more definite call to go to China without finishing his medical studies. At age 21, he departed on the six-month journey. Now we just hop on a 747 and we're there in 15 hours, but six months. During his 51 years of service in China, he established a China Inland Mission with 20 mission stations. He brought 480, sorry, 849 missionaries to the field, trained 700 Chinese workers, raised $4 million by faith, and developed a witnessing Chinese church of 125,000, of which at least 35,000 were his own converts. This is Hudson Taylor. You know, one of the names on your list is uh, Robert Morrison, number 20. When Morrison went to China, it is believed that there were zero regenerated Christians in the whole entire country of China at that time. Uh, that was in the late 1700s, early 1800s. But now, you know, there's millions and millions and millions of Christians in China. In fact, the last two names on this list uh, are two brothers that God raised up in China uh, and served much. Uh, we don't have time to get to them tonight. Let me move on to Moody, D.L. Moody. Number 27. Moody was a poorly educated but intelligent and hard-working shoe salesman from humble origins. Because of family finances, he moved to Boston and lived with an uncle who made it a requirement that he attend Sunday school. Okay, if you're going to live with me, you've got to promise to attend Sunday school every week. Well, <clears throat> Moody needed a place to live, so he lived with his uncle. And he worked at selling shoes. He became good at it. His ambition was to become rich. Do any of you have that ambition? You want to become rich one day, right? When he was 18, his Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball, who hardly knew him, 
was burdened for his salvation and struggled much over whether to go to Moody's place of work and share with him the gospel. Eventually, he built up the courage to do it. Have you ever felt the Lord's leading to, you, you want to speak something to somebody, but you just don't have the courage. Eventually, he built up the courage. This is the Sunday school teacher. He walked into the store, actually, after he had passed by a couple of times. He finally got the courage to walk in. And he just put his hand on Moody's shoulder and told him of Christ's love for him and what the Lord wanted from him. To Kimball's surprise, Moody surrendered to the Lord immediately, and his life was immediately changed. He just began to weep, and he got saved right there in the shoe store. That was when he was 18 years old. Years later, in a sovereign encounter, Moody led Kimball's son to the Lord. You know, I really appreciate this story. Sometimes the people that you shepherd will be the very ones that will shepherd your children. There's a brother in Austin that I met on the UT campus and spent a number of years shepherding him. And now he's living in Austin, he's working in Austin, he's married, he has a couple kids, but he is shepherding my son every single Saturday morning. They get together for breakfast or coffee, and uh, I'm so thankful to the Lord. But this is what happens. Um, Okay, Moody gave up his successful business as a shoe salesman at age 24 to begin serving the Lord full time. It was the direct result of Moody's visit to Cambridge in 1882 that the Cambridge Seven sacrificed their all to follow the Lord to China. Moody was an incessant student of the Bible. It was his custom to rise at 5 a.m. that he might enjoy several hours of prayerful Bible study before he went about the duty of acting outwardly the grace he had been imbibing by feeding on the Word. You know, earlier, um, I don't know, was it last night or today? I think it was today. The brothers were showing uh, how we just desire that you all would just read the Bible. Get in the habit of reading the Bible every day. And it just takes two to three minutes per day to read a chapter. And it'll change your life. Well, here's a guy. He got up at five in the morning and spent two or three hours imbibing the word by feeding on it so that when he went throughout his day, he would be able to feed others and minister Christ to people. You know what? We may never be like Moody and spend two or three hours a day reading the Bible. We may never be like Hudson Taylor and lead 35,000 uh, you know, of our own converts to, to receive the Lord. We may never be like George Mueller and have a million prayers answered uh, before God. But brothers and sisters, we're, we're young, and uh, you know all these stories that we're reading are just so inspiring to us, right? We, we cannot and, and probably will never uh, be able to emulate their actions, but their spirit. Can you taste their spirit? Uh, we want that spirit, right? That spirit of seeking God, groping for Him, 
finding Him, running after Him, pursuing Him with our whole being, loving Him with our whole, uh, our whole being, our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength, pouring out everything on Him. That we can do. Every, whatever happens after that is up to the Lord, right? Whether 35,000 will get saved or not. But, but at least we can do that, right? We can imbibe God's Word by praying it uh, and so forth. Well, I better end here with these stories and maybe just flip to the, very, uh, the second page of your outline. Roman numeral 2, it says, Vessels of mercy, vessels unto honor. The main point that I want you to take away from Roman numeral 2 is why God uses young people. Why does God use young people? Because young people are unloaded. They are most susceptible to the gospel. It's easy for them to repent. If a young person hears something worthwhile, they can drop everything and run after it with their whole being. Later in life, and I'll tell you, students, I know some of you think, oh, you know, I have no time in college. Um, I just need all my time to study. I don't have time for God. Let me tell you, you have more free time now than you ever will for the rest of your life. You don't believe me? Wait until you get a real job with a real boss that's demanding. Wait until you have a mortgage payment every month. Wait until you get married and start having kids and you have some in-laws that you have to deal with and you have health issues, and just on and on and on, it just builds and builds and builds. If you think you have no time now, you will have zero time later. But if you develop these habits while you're young, reading the Bible every day, praying, pray reading the Word, getting up early in the morning to touch the Lord, even five minutes. Why can't, why can't we just get up for five minutes to touch the Lord before we turn on our cell phone, before we look at our device. Why not? But if you will develop these habits while you're young, then later in life, when the, when the real pressure comes, no, that exam is not real pressure. When the real pressure comes, the habit will be there. And you'll have a taste the Lord. You'll have a taste for the Word. You'll have a taste for prayer. You'll have a taste for fellowship with the brothers and sisters. You'll have a taste for reality, and you won't want to miss out on it day after day. If you miss out on it today, you'll have a sense, ah, I missed something. I don't want it to happen again tomorrow. You see? Because you developed a taste while you're young. Then the last point, time to prepare Basically, the time is now. The time is now, brothers and sisters. You have time now to get constituted. Get constituted with the Word. Get constituted with the truth. Get constituted with these things. Uh, because life only gets more complicated. Okay, <clears throat> let's stop here.